Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, March 1st. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. The United States, where more than 513,000 people have died from the coronavirus, now beginning distribution on its third coronavirus vaccine. The Johnson & Johnson shot expected to boost the nation's supply at a critical moment. And with the economy still stalled, the focus of President Biden's efforts this week, pushing a massive stimulus bill through an evenly split Senate. After that measure passed the House with zero Republicans voting for the aid package. And former President Trump speaking at a major conservative conference in Florida, once again baselessly trying to undermine the 2020 election while teasing a potential run in 2024. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. A third vaccine now joining the fight against COVID-19. The FDA granting Johnson & Johnson emergency use authorization and the first doses getting administered as early as tomorrow. Lorraine Gossides has the latest on the pandemic right here in the U.S. It's all hands on deck. This is the scene Monday at Johnson & Johnson's distribution center in Kentucky. Millions of vaccine doses being shipped all over the country. We're confident in our finding that the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine meets our rigorous standards of safety and effectiveness. On Saturday, the FDA granting emergency use authorization for the third vaccine in the fight against COVID-19. And this is really good news for the world. Now we have a third vaccine in the United States that has reached this approval by the advisory committee. It's the easiest one to ship in store, only requires one dose, and it's considered 72% effective at preventing infection with 86% protection against severe symptoms. This vaccine has been shown to be 100% protective against hospitalizations and death. The director of the CDC is saying in a statement, the vaccine comes at a potentially pivotal time. CDC's latest data suggests that recent declines in COVID-19 19 cases may be stalling and potentially leveling off at still very high numbers. On Sunday, the U.S. recorded 51,204 new cases, the lowest number reported since October. But overall, after weeks of a steady decline, the average daily cases have gone up about 5%. We're really right now in a race between variants and vaccines, and we have to do whatever we can to shut down this virus. Cases of new variants now rising to over 2,400 nationwide, and 46 states now reporting at least one case. The quicker you get vaccinated, the more quickly you will be protected, and you will add on to the overall protection in your county, in your country. Clinical trials, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has shown to be effective against the South African variant and the UK variant. The company is saying that in March, they will have 20 million doses and 100 million doses by June. They're also saying they are soon going to be uh, starting clinical trials in pregnant women, children, even newborn. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Meanwhile, the CDC is reporting that more than 75 million doses of the coronavirus vaccine have been administered as of Sunday. CDC data shows that nearly 50 million Americans have now received at least one dose of the vaccine. Around 25 million people have now been vaccinated with both shots. Currently, 1.7 million vaccine doses are being given a day right here in the U.S. 
And for more on the coronavirus, let's go straight to Dr. Jeremy Faust. He's an emergency room physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Thank you so much for being with us today, doctor. Welcome to U News. Thank you very much. As we've seen, there's some encouraging news with the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So how effective is it exactly? What's great about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is not just its efficacy numbers, which are really excellent. I think that if it had been the first vaccine to come out, the headlines would have been jubilant as they are. But of course, people compare them to Moderna and Pfizer, where there's possibly even better with, with those. But when you actually crunch into the data, you look and see that once you get further and further from that shot, the Johnson & Johnson data begins to look as good in some areas and maybe even better in some respects than those other options. So now I see them as really all three as great options. And the great thing about the Johnson & Johnson option is really its convenience because there are some things, there are some advantages that it brings to the table that the other vaccines don't have. Well, can you specify what are some of those advantages of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as compared to the Moderna and Pfizer shots? I know it's a single dose, and I just wonder if there will be an issue that people will only prefer then the Johnson & Johnson in order to avoid that second appointment for that second dose. Yes, and the messaging that I am very comfortable with when people ask me which vaccine should I get, which one would you get, I always answer that I didn't even ask. I mean, I had a, I had no choice. It was Moderna or it was Pfizer. I happened to get Pfizer. If I went today, I wouldn't ask. I would just get the one that was offered to me soonest because the most important thing is that you have antibodies against coronavirus as soon as possible. The There are a couple of advantages in the Johnson & Johnson that have to do really with respect to the nationwide response and the worldwide response. Because the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require much colder storage, then you can actually get the Johnson & Johnson to areas that don't have super cold freezers that even some pharm many pharmacies would not have. So the Johnson & Johnson can now reach places with just refrigeration. That's all you need is a regular refrigerator for three months of a shelf life. That means that for, in some places where the vaccine might not even be available, now you have an option where it's easy to get. I think the fact that there is that one dose, the one and done, is really fantastic. Certainly the side effect profiles of these all of these vaccines is, is in a way I see it as a good thing. Our bodies really respond to this, these vaccines. And unfortunately that comes with a, an occasional side effect like a fever or body aches. And for people who don't wanna miss work, having to go through it twice is it's a nice thing about the Johnson & Johnson. That being said, I think that all three of these are really safe and plenty of my colleagues have had no side effects at all. And it certainly beats getting coronavirus. Now, how effective are the vaccines against the variant that has been discovered in New York City? With respect to the actual New York City variants, which I think is something we're just learning about, I don't think we yet know. But I, one thing I want to really emphasize is that we are studying, I say we, the scientific community, are studying these variants very carefully. And one way they do that is to look at the characteristics of the antibodies that the vaccines cause us to make. So we make antibodies when we get vaccinated. And then we can take those antibodies and see how well they inhibit, they bind, they block the virus 
in a laboratory setting. And what we have seen so far is that some of these variants make us a little worried because they seem to avoid that attack, that antibody attack, just a little more um, in, in the dish, in the laboratory. But the levels of the antibody response, the levels of the antibody action in the laboratory is still way, way above the sort of limit threshold that we would have to be worried that they don't work. So the vaccines so far have been shown to have a little bit less activity in the laboratory environment against the variants, but the levels are still so high, so high, uh, they work so well that we, we think that the protection is still there. We will know more about that based on real-world clinical data coming forward. But at the moment, I think the lesson is that we have been a little unlucky that these variants have occurred, but lucky that the vaccines still work. But it's a big warning shot to say, let's decrease the spread of this virus because that's how you decrease more mutations from showing up. And maybe those mutations would be even worse. Now, there's also news today about therapeutics, a major trial of convalescent plasma to treat mild cases of COVID was halted. Now, we know that you broke this story on Brief 19, and that's an online publication with the latest on COVID research and policy. What do you know about the reasons why this specific treatment was halted? So convalescent plasma is when you take basically the antibodies from a recovered patient with COVID-19 and attempt to transfuse them into a patient who, ha who is now um, experiencing COVID-19 later on. And you're hoping to halt the disease from getting worse. You're hoping to save lives. You're hoping to keep people out of the hospital. Many of the studies that had come out so far had looked at hospitalized patients with very severe disease and there had been several studies that really were disappointing and didn't show any benefit. The hope was maybe in milder cases, early in the disease, maybe the convalescent plasma could halt the progression of the virus's illness in patients and keep them out of hospitals. The trial that was halted, which was an NIH-funded trial in collaboration with many universities around the United States and other hospitals, was halted because about halfway through, approximately, they have what's called a, a monitoring board. And the statisticians look at the data and they say, look, so far, do we see anything that's possibly hopeful or not? And sometimes what happens is the data are so disappointing in terms of any perceived effect that the statisticians conclude that even in the best case scenario, if we continue to add patients to this trial, there's no way we will actually see the convalescent plasma come out a winner. And therefore, it's, uh, it, they stopped the trial because it's sort of deemed to be, unfortunately, a futile effort. What's important to realize, though, is that's not a failure. That's actually a success of science. When you study a question like this and you want a good answer, you have to really do rigorous science. And in this case, they have hundreds of patients and hundreds of scientists and researchers who all did the right thing to come up with an answer that is disappointing but is helpful so that we know to move on to something else. The other major point that I want to say is therapeutics have been talked about a lot during this crisis, and some people have looked to them as sort of a um, saving grace. Maybe we'll have a, a medicine will make this all go away. And time after time, it's been disappointment, except for the vaccines, which we know we know why and how they work for so many different uh, diseases. Obviously, there's different challenges for each disease. But to me, this really supports the idea that the best way to, to beat this thing is going to be through vaccination. Well, Dr. Jeremy Faust of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, thank you so much for providing us with so much information. It's a very interesting conversation that we can go on and on. We have run out of time, but overall, some good news on the vaccine front.
thank you so much for your work. Have a great day. You too, thanks. Thank you. And another top stories today, the CDC has posted new COVID-19 prevention guidance for schools and daycares. Its top recommendation, open doors and windows in classrooms and on transportation vehicles. On a newly posted webpage, the CDC said cracking open windows and doors helps increase outdoor airflow, reducing how much virus could be in the air. The agency advised the use of child safe fans to increase the effectiveness of open windows and having activities, classes or even lunches outdoors. Heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems are also addressed in the new guidance. Turning to Florida now and former President Donald Trump, the ex-president returned to the spotlight, speaking at a conservative conference in Orlando. Now, this happens less than two months after the deadly insurrection at the Capitol, which led to his second impeachment. Trump focused on attacking the Biden administration's agenda and also told supporters his journey is far from over. Trump returning to the center stage. Thank you very much, and hello, CPAC. Do you miss me yet? Do you miss me? Addressing a largely maskless crowd at a conservative conference in Florida, telling Republicans he still wants to lead. And I want you to know that I'm going to continue to fight right by your side. The former president still pushing baseless claims that the 2020 general election was stolen. Actually, as you know, they just lost the White House, but it's one of those things. But who knows? Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? This was Trump's first speech since being acquitted in his second impeachment trial, accused of inciting the insurrection at the Capitol. The Trump show in Florida, a reminder of his popularity among conservatives. Trump also insisting he has no intention of starting a new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. In the CPAC conference's unscientific 2024 Republican presidential straw poll, attendees picked Trump as their favorite candidate with 55% of the vote. Second to Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis with 21%. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem finished a distant third with 4%. Meanwhile, a Quinnipiac poll shows three-quarters of Republicans still favor Trump playing a prominent role within the GOP. Donald J. Trump ain't going anywhere. Leader of the conservative movement, the leader of the American First Movement, the leader of the Republican Party. During the speech, Trump took aim at the Biden administration's first month in office. Trump criticized President Biden's early moves on immigration, national security and the pandemic. However, some key figures were missing at CPAC over the weekend. Former Vice President Mike Pence and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell both chose to skip the event. And the third-ranking GOP member of the House, Liz Cheney, one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach the former president six weeks ago, also not there. Trump did not use his speech to announce any plans to run again, but he repeatedly teased the prospect as he predicted a Republican would win back the White House in 2024. But it remains unclear how much support there could be for another Trump term.
President Biden is meeting virtually today with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. They're expected to talk about immigration, confronting the pandemic, and cooperating on economic and national security issues. Let's go to Edwin Piti in Washington, D.C. with the very latest details on this. Edwin. Hi, Andrea, that's right. I can tell you that migration, security, and the fight against COVID-19 are among the main topics that President Joe Biden and his Mexican counterpart, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, will address today in their first meeting taking place virtually. Obrador is intended to propose a new immigrant labor program that could bring up to 800,000 Mexicans and Central Americans immigrants a year to work legally here in the United States. Biden and Obrador will also focus on important security topics like curbing the flow of weapons into Mexico and combating criminal groups. It's expected that Lopez Obrador will ask the U.S. to share some of its vaccine supply because despite Mexico having agreements for hundreds of millions of doses, most have not arrived. The White House said that both leaders will also discuss economic cooperation to ensure that the two nations are recovering from the crisis that has resulted from the pandemic. There are high expectations for this meeting because it's like hitting the reset button on relations between the neighboring countries. Let's remember that during the Trump administration, Lopez Obrador managed to maintain a good relation with the U.S., but at times he had to give in to pressure, especially when it comes to immigration. Live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. We know there's a very difficult situation there at the border. Thank you. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, the Senate is now the focus of President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package after the House approved it Saturday. The bill, known as the American Rescue Plan, narrowly passed 219 to 212, and it faces a very similar rocky path in the evenly divided Senate with no Republicans expected to support the bill. The president will have to count on every one of the 50 Democratic senators and a tie-breaking 51st vote from Vice President Kamala Harris to make sure its key pillars remain in the bill. The measure would provide millions of Americans $1,400 stimulus payments, ramp up vaccine distribution and extend unemployment aid through the summer. Now for more on the proposed stimulus, we now go to Univision's own Ilya Calderon and her exclusive conversation with President Joe Biden and the First Lady Jill Biden. Their discussion was wide ranging, covering relief for undocumented workers during this pandemic, vaccine safety and the administration's handling of undocumented migrant children crossing the southern border. But first, we start with President Biden's update on when the public can expect stimulus checks in their accounts. I expect that they'll be getting within a couple of weeks after the bill is passed in the House and Senate that I can sign, that I expect they'll be getting a check for $1,400. So it could be another three weeks or so before someone would get a check. And to help the undocumented immigrants that are many of them essential workers that are not going to receive the relief, do you have any plans for them? I want to make sure they all are able to get vaccinated and so they're protected from COVID without 
the ICE or anyone else interfering. They should not show up, should not be arrested for showing up, for being able to uh, get a, a, a vaccination. We're also uh, making sure that they're going to be able to have enough food. I propose in the legislation, not just these food banks, but increasing SNAP payments and other payments. The vaccination process is going well. More than 50 million people have received uh, the vaccine. But you also mentioned the black community and the Hispanic community and how badly have been they affected they by have. this pandemic. Some of them don't believe or are afraid of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Can you guarantee that those communities affected are going to receive the vaccine? And can you assure them that it's safe to be vaccinated? I can assure them it's safe, number one. And I can assure them I'm doing everything to make it possible, to make it easier for them to get access to the vaccine. Get the vaccination if it's available to you. And for communities of color, I think it's all about trust. And I think um, during our campaign, I think we tried to build that trust. Mr. President, in the five weeks you've been in office, you have been taking many actions to revert uh, Trump administration's anti-immigration policy. But the Washington Post reports that your administration has plans to open tents at Del Rio, a, a town close to the border. Can you confirm that? Right now, there's thousands of unaccompanied children coming across the border. Mm -hmm. In Texas, they opened up one, one that was a former uh, one used in the, in the administration, the last administration. Our hope and expectation is that won't stay open very long, that we'll be able to provide for every kid who comes across the border safely to be housed in a facility that's licensed. And this administration is doing it in a humane way. And that's really important. I mean, we want to make sure that these children are safe, that they get mental health services, they get physical health services, they get education. The New York Times is reporting that a second aide to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is accusing him of sexual harassment. Charlotte Bennett, the former aide, alleges Governor Cuomo asked her questions about her sex life when she was alone in his office in Albany. She said she interpreted those remarks and others as clear sexual overtures. On Saturday, the governor denied these allegations, saying he believed he only acted as a mentor towards Bennett. Cuomo is asking for an outside review of the matter after an aide named Lindsay Boylan accused Cuomo of sexual harassment in December, saying the governor kissed her on the lips. Meanwhile, New York Attorney General Letitia James said yesterday that her office expects to receive a referral with subpoena power from Cuomo's office. With that, her office will investigate the accusations of sexual harassment by hiring a law firm to conduct an independent investigation. Cuomo is also facing allegations of trying to cover up how many nursing home residents in New York died from COVID-19. In other major news we're following, law enforcement officials say the FBI has identified a suspect in the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick following the Capitol breach. But the FBI is not naming this suspect. The theory is that Sicknick became sick from bear spray used by the mob during that January 6th insurrection. He later died at the hospital. Video evidence appears to show the attack that could have caused his death. It remains a difficult case for investigators, and it's unclear what charges may be filed. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And here's an out of this world story. A child cancer survivor has been named as a second crew member to fly aboard the first space mission with only private citizens on board. Haley Arsenault will be part of the all civilian crew mission, the Inspiration 4, to be launched later on this year. At the age of 10 years old, Haley survived bone cancer, and she's now a physician's assistant at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the very same hospital she was treated at as a child. And Haley joins us now from Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you so much for being with us today, Haley. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. So what was your reaction when you found out you were being selected for this space mission? I mean, was being an astronaut something you had always dreamed about as a little girl? Well, I actually visited NASA a few months before I was diagnosed with cancer. And after seeing that, of course I wanted to be an astronaut, like who doesn't? And then I was diagnosed with cancer and all I've ever wanted to do is work at St. Jude. But, um, but when they called me and invited me to go to space, that you know, this call came out of the blue in early January and I was shocked. And I said yes right away because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Definitely. Now tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for who else will be on board with you? So we're the first all civilian mission to space and our commander is named Jared Isaacman and he's actually the philanthropist who has sponsored this mission. And then we have two more crew members who have not yet been announced, but one is a person who has donated money to St. Jude during this sweepstakes, and that one lucky person will win a seat. And then the fourth seat is an entrepreneur, somebody with a business idea who made a video about their idea and is gonna be selected by a panel of judges. Wow, just incredible. So the spaceship will be orbiting Earth for four days. What is the training like for something like this? I mean, take us into what this experience may be like. So training starts later this month. I'm so excited. But the first thing that we're going to do is centrifuge training, like getting our bodies used to the, the G-forces we're going to feel. And then we're going to spend a lot of time in the simulator and spend a lot of time in spacesuits. And on top of all this, I'll get some additional training because I'll be the medical officer of this mission. Now, take us back a couple of years. You were diagnosed with cancer at 10 years old. What did that experience show you about yourself and who you wanted to become? So I spent a year undergoing treatment for bone cancer at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and that was the most important year of my life. It definitely taught me to be strong and it made me who I am. And at the same time, St. Jude was just such a positive, uplifting environment that ever since I was going through treatment, all I've ever wanted to do is work at St. Jude. And last year I got my dream job. And I have to say that I have the best job in the whole world because I get to work with the bravest kids and they inspire me daily. What do you think this mission represents for humanity? 
I hope it, it really shows people who have had to overcome something what is possible, um, especially for kids going through cancer treatment. I hope to really show them that the sky is not even the limit, that they can do anything that they set their mind to. And, you know, I never thought this would be in my future. I never thought space travel would be possible. But I think that's the beauty of life. Sometimes things pop up that are unexpected, um, but that can be some of the best experiences in life. And I, I hope to just so, show people to keep going, even when times are tough, just keep going. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that raffle that you mentioned, the other two spots that will be um, given off and will head with you? And how is this mission going to benefit the hospital? So this mission was serving as a fundraiser for St. Jude, and it still is. We have an incredible goal of $200 million that we want to raise for St. Jude. And so one of the seats, um, one of the people joining us in space, we throughout the month of February, there was a contest. And, um, and basically, people could go on the website and donate any amount of money to St. Jude, and somebody that donated would be randomly selected. And, um, and that person will be announced in the next few weeks. And I'm incredibly excited to meet our third and fourth crew members. Well, we are excited to hear who that next person will be. Thank you so much for sharing this a very inspirational story, Haley Arsenal. And we're happy to know that you were able to overcome cancer. And now you're doing so much for other families and children. Thank you. Take care. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.